Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Year Asian Americans. I hope you're doing well. Uh, it's been about a week since the horrific murders in Atlanta, and our community has gone through a lot. And I genuinely hope that you're doing okay and that you have found time and space to grieve, to talk with friends, to take care of yourself as we navigate these challenging times. It's an honor to introduce this next conversation with our guest hosts for March, Tiffany Huang, who interviews our amazing mutual friend, uh, Dr. Stephanie Wong, who is a psychologist. And though we recorded this um, about two weeks ago, before all that happened, the conversation, and particularly her The Asian Americans letter at the end of the interview, uh, resonates so differently and, and so much more. So I, I thank you for joining us. I invite you to stick around till the end uh, to the complete interview. And um, we have listed some mental health resources through our Dear Asian Americans Instagram channel. Check that out. Uh, share it with anybody. Share it with everybody. We are going to get through this together. And please do reach out uh, either to us or to a friend or to a mental health professional if you need help. Again, thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, whether you found us uh, recently or whether you've been with us from the beginning, thank you so much. And without further ado, uh, here now is the conversation between Tiffany and Stephanie. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dear Asian Americans. If you're joining us and confused why I'm not Jerry, I am Tiffany Huang, your host for the month of March. I want to welcome you to the show as we celebrate Women's History Month, shining the spotlight on Asian American women to not only celebrate them, but to inspire us all. Today, I'm excited to welcome Dr. Stephanie Wong who is not only a mom, but a licensed clinical psychologist and a fellow podcast host over at Color of Success. Hi, Stephanie. Thanks for coming on. How are you? Hi, Stephanie. How's it going? Good. I'm so glad we're having a one-on-one -on -one chat finally. I know. It's been a long time coming, and I'm so glad we're able to sit down. And I know we're moms and busy and doing podcasting stuff, and so this is really great. I know. Thanks for carving out the time. I um. We've been probably running in the same circle for about a year now, and it's high time. Um, I'm really, really glad to welcome you to the show just because um, mental health is just something that's near and dear to my heart, and I love the work that you're doing because it is so important um, just to be an advocate and to help destigmatize um, the issue. So thanks for coming on again. Thank you, and yeah. it's so exciting that you get to guest host and um, I mean, your podcast, Tit Talks, is great, and it's uh, the title is amazing, by the It's way. a little cheeky. <laughs> <laughs> but my style, so. I love it. I know. And I love, um, personally, just how you're so unapologetic about who you are, particularly your love for BTS. <laughs> um, I just got into that because my kids are in love with them now, so it's really fun to watch. <laughs> I know. And the thing, the great thing about it is they hit all the demographics and I really hope they win the Grammy because they deserve it. Even though they got kind of snubbed, they did get snubbed for many of the categories. I just really hope that they win. Yeah, no, they're breaking molds out there. <laughs> so, you know, we can't wait to hear your story and what brought you into the field of mental health. But before we do, we always kind of rewind back and we'd love to hear about your family's journey to America. You know, we chatted over email a little bit before this conversation, and I'm so interested to hear the rich family history that goes back several generations 
um, with your parents actually being born here? Absolutely. So depending on the side that you're looking at, I'm third or fourth generation here. And so um, a little bit different experience than maybe if my parents were immigrants. Um, I actually, interestingly, did a couple of projects on my family in college. I had to do a family tree or family history, and it was really, really helpful to get context. I interviewed my aunt because they really recommended someone who was kind of older and knew more of the rich history. And my, as you'll soon learn, like my grandma may not have been the best choice because um, she is, she was illiterate. And so um, just a little bit more difficult. I mean, we weren't just writing the, the story, um, but I think it was, would just be a little bit harder um, to, to get the full history. So anyways, I interviewed my aunt. She's just like me. She cusses up a storm. And so it was a great, she did it by back in the day. Our kids wouldn't even know cassette tapes. And so I had this cassette tape playing in my dorm room, trying to transcribe this thing with F-bombs going off and stuff like that. So um, <laughs> it was super fun. Um, my now husband, you know, we we lived together uh, with two other of our close friends, so it was fine. Um, but, uh, and then in graduate school, we were asked to do what's called a cultural genogram, which is pretty much a souped up family tree, but then it also has a narrative to it. So basically, she started off the story with, we have come a long way. And um, as I mentioned, my grandma was illiterate. She grew up in China and to a very impoverished family. Uh, her job was to herd the sheep and um, stack the firewood. And she was the first um, female in the village not to have her feet bound. Because, yeah, because my, my great-grandma was a very practical woman and said, how is she going to stack the wood and herd the sheep with her feet bound? And so uh, that was revolutionary at the time. Um, she was then, though, forced to marry uh, my grandpa, who was 30 years her senior and the village school teacher. She was his second wife, and so, you know, he had children before that. And very, it was just a very difficult situation, as, as I imagine with most um, immigrant families. My grandfather and great-grandfather uh, came over here, and they both worked on the transcontinent. My grandpa worked on the you know, transcontinental railroad and sent money back and eventually went back to China. But when the Chinese Exclusion Act was repealed, they were able to go back and she, he petitioned for my grandmother and my aunt to move with them. And so they, my mom was actually born in Omaha, Nebraska, uh, <laughs> where the, one of the railroad um, stations were, you know, where they were, they settled. And um, eventually they did move to the Bay Area and my, on my dad's side, they were already here. We know less about their immigration story, but my grandfather similar to most immigrant stories, opened up a grocery store. Um, my dad eventually owned and sold that, and now he's still a grocer. Um, the tragic part of my mom's story is that my her dad, my grandfather, passed away when she was a teenager. So imagine my grandma being illiterate, working as a waitress, 14-hour days, like went through her, a lot of her own mental health issues. So... Um, 
that pretty much defined kind of um, their story. Um, but wow. my parents were both born in America, so it really right. shaped my story. Yeah. Um, I myself had had done one of those um, in high school um, projects about the, the railroad. And that was actually the very first time I, I really heard that history in detail. And I've never met um, people that have a connection to that. And um, mm-hmm. thank you for sharing that story. It is, it is really so difficult when you think about um, our place in society as women. And think about your grandma who was forced to marry this man 30 years her senior. And We've come such a long way in terms of us having choice and, (laughs) but you know, there's still so much to go (laughs) from where we were. Yeah. And you know, you grew up in the Bay area, which has a really large concentration of Asian Americans. There's a very strong community there. Did you, when you grew up, did you feel like you were other or did you just feel surrounded by people that look like you and you didn't feel it at all? Yeah, I, I'm a proud native San Franciscan. Um, a lot of crap is going on right now, but yeah. when I grew up, my elementary school was very diverse. Um, my my close circle had Asian, Asian Pacific Islanders. Um, most of my friends were actually black, and um, my best friend was white and Latina. So very rich cultural aspect and and a fun fact is the editor of our podcast is actually an elementary school friend so oh my gosh yeah I've maintained my relationships with many of my close friends uh, from elementary school but in middle school we started to see the cliques form and middle school was the same like it was very very diverse but that's when kids start breaking off in their different ethnic groups or different interests and stuff like that um and then I went to a high school that was that it's a magnet school. Also, a lot of crap going on right now with that school. But you applied. It was kind of that coveted school that a lot of Asian Americans wanted to go to, and so it's like 80 90 percent Asian. So actually, I was part of a majority there. Right. Um, and you know, I didn't really feel like an other, I guess, until college when I was in a class where this uh, one white dude was saying, you know, black people aren't don't have less opportunity than white people when they apply for a job that have equal, equal access and rights. And I was just blown away by that. And um, my mom was dating a black man at the time and I called him like so pissed off. And I was like, how do you deal with this every day? And he was kind of desensitized in his response, but that's when I realized that, you know, Asian Americans, uh, blacks, African-Americans, they, you know, they were seen as other in some people's eyes, even though I went only an hour, hour and a half away from uh, San Francisco, right? Um, But in graduate school, I I really felt other. The school population in Northern Virginia was very diverse, but within a clinical PhD psychology, clinical psychology program, all the staff members were white. Um, There were two females, um, but in that sense, you don't see yourself reflected in the demographic. Right. And is that the program you, there was only seven of you that attended to that? There were eight women, strong, powerful women that were accepted. One decided um, that she, this wasn't the path for her. She was the one that I thought would never drop out out of the eight of us. And so by the time in, in the course of the first year, there was seven of us in my original cohort and 
um, in other program, uh, as years went by, they accepted less and less people. So wow. I think I know the high school that you're talking about um, in San Francisco. I've had several friends um, that, that went there. One of my one of my best friends that was my roommate in college. And I can't help but think what that um, experience must have been like. Um, I grew up um, just constantly at the start, always feeling other. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was painfully aware of it all my life. Um, and I can't I can't imagine what it would be like to. I guess, feel seen as you're growing up. Um, yeah. And it must have such a dynamic um, effect on your self-confidence as well, like to just feel comfortable in your own skin. Yeah, I mean, I was privileged and fortunate to have, you know, I guess more of the stereotypical issues growing up about kind of being nerdy, being a tomboy in in middle school. And, you know, I mean, but I was surrounded by people who really pushed me academically, really supported me. I didn't really think about my ethnicity because everywhere, everyone around me had similar values or goals. Um, There's a lot of um, within group variation. So I didn't even think of us as homogenous, so to speak. I thought, well, this person wants to play sports. This person, you know, wants to do music and dance. And I mean, it was a very... I will say that the high school, while it was very rigorous, it made college uh, feel not like a big transition at all because it was so difficult and rigorous at high school. But we also had the freedom like we had we could pick our own schedules and choose what classes we wanted to take for electives. And there was always people out of class, which wasn't great for my husband because uh, he could not go. Um, and it, people wouldn't know, uh, per se, aside from his teachers, but there was a freedom there. Yeah. Oh, are you guys high school sweethearts? We are. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I love that. <laughs> it was a jock. I was a nerd. It worked out. Oh my gosh. And then did you, when you were in Virginia, you guys did long distance? No, you moved with me actually. Oh, I love that. Yeah. That's dedication. <laughs> yeah. So I followed him to Santa Cruz. We were planning on going to another UC. He didn't get in. <laughs> This is how the story goes, right? It's like a, a little a little story within story. And and um, so then he he followed me to Virginia and he was like, that was like way longer than going from San Francisco to Santa Cruz. But I mean, it's it worked out. It was a very um, unique experience. And he I really credit him for where I am today and where I'm going, continuing to go just because he he won't say I'm a feminist, but he's a feminist at heart because he has two daughters. He lives with women, my mom and yeah. me. And so he's surrounded by women and he really believes in equality and uplifting us. And so I, you know, yeah. just so you much can't ask for a better partner. Right. I feel uh, very similar in, in that regard. Um, I My husband also probably wouldn't come out. I don't even know if he realizes that he is one, but he's one. <laughs> We know what's up. So. Yeah, exactly. So going back to what you were saying about um, obviously your career choice and the path there and and the weight that probably was on your grandmother's shoulders mentally, physically, you know, just bearing the brunt of, of everything in your mother's upbringing. Is that something that you saw play out in, in how she handled situations with you growing up? Absolutely. So I don't speak about this very publicly often, but my mom suffered from severe depression 
And I didn't, my brother and I didn't know it at the time. She just slept yeah. a lot. She had some pretty, we laugh about it now, very weird rules. Um, but my mom and I are best friends. There's actually an interesting dynamic there where I'm more of the maternal one. Like I am an uh, a old person trapped in a younger person's body and it's, it's reversed. And I was just telling someone else yesterday um, that we, we don't do this anymore because we have the kids around, but when they're not, like we love cussing at each other for fun. Like it was hailing yesterday. Example, it was hailing yesterday and I was in my office and um, she was like, there's ice outside. I was like, what? She's like, I C E. And I was like, B, I know how to spell ice. <laughs> so, and she was like, yeah, you, but it's, it's so fun. And it's such a unique relationship because we've grown so we've been through so much together because my parents are divorced. And when I was in high school, I lived with my mom. And so we've been through a lot together. And I feel like because of that, we are stronger and stronger women and have come out on a really good side. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, thank you for being so vulnerable and sharing um, her experience. But I think that is also one that just mimics many of of our parents as well. Like even now when I look back and I, I think back to, you know, in some instances how my mom behaved or how she dealt with situations as well, there's a parallel there. Um, and we didn't have the vernacular back then. We didn't have the resources to support. Um, and I think it just makes it doubly painful to, to look back and recognize like, oh my God, they were going through such tough times and who did they have to turn to? Nobody. Right. And, you know, even myself, um, and I'll share this, and this is why this is like near and dear to my heart to have you on here. It's like, you know, I was a victim of bullying when I was in high school. Um, and it was a very, very tough time for me. And I think it's actually continued to shape like who I am to this day. And back then, I, I remember talking to my mom about it, but like not really getting the support I needed, you know. Um, and this is why I'm so passionate about it, because, you know, these things need to be talked about. You need to have help. You need to have resources so that you can get to the other side a lot quicker than I did. Um, and that's what I would hope to be, I suppose, for my kids if they encountered something like that. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So, so you know, to go through that. Oh, thank you. I mean, in the end, right. I, everything that happens to you happens for a reason, I think. And it's helped shape who I am, but it was painful. I'm not going to lie. Right. So, um, so, you know, viewing, having this view of, of your mom's experiences, your grandma's experiences, did that, you know, significantly shape who you wanted to be in, in the professional realm? Well, first off, it shaped me as a woman because my, for when my parents were married, my mom was a stay at home mom. We joke about it all the time. Worst stay at home mom. <laughs> Didn't like to, can't cook, didn't clean, uh, slept a lot. Like we grew up on KFC. Um, thank God I'm not, a, you know, unhealthy um, yeah. now as an adult. We, and, you know, we, we've talked about this so much, but um, it, it, it made me realize that I didn't, I wanted my own identity in my career, in my, in my um, academics, because I didn't want to be in a situation where after over a decade, I didn't have money or a career. She is so strong because she started from nothing again, square one, right? And yeah. so 
Um, I have been, I've almost overcorrected because I work so much and try to balance so much. But at the end of the day, it works because I've gained the social capital and kind of um, scratched my way through different areas. Not, not in a mean way. What I mean is like, when you go to college, I didn't have money, didn't have the privilege, right? So I had to learn how to fill out a FAFSA and, and to get my mom's taxes from her, which was like the most difficult part of the process, right? So those things had to be learned, but I was willing to learn them and um, work, work jobs at a young age, just so that I can get to a unidentified point to where I can have my own career and identity. Yeah. I mean, and you know, when you look back now, look at your journey. I mean, what an amazing example you are to your two girls, right? Um, And then what was the question I was going to ask now that I've forgotten it? (laughs) (laughs) No, you mentioned, um, did this shape also my career choice? And um, if I look at it and simplistically, yes. Um, And, you know, seeing people struggle in my high school with mental health and not having any resources, I publicly say we lost a student to suicide during my time there, during our time there. And there was, there was no mental health resources. And so it just showed, and even within my family and friends and things like that, there really was a need, but no one was talking about it. No one was seeking resources or being curious about that. Yeah. And, you know, we probably are about the same age. And when I think back to even my experience, I remember actually going to administration or a few teachers even about what was happening to me and there there was no stepping in like there was nothing to the level that that exists now um, which is great from a progressive standpoint but how difficult for all those of us that lived through that without support you know um and then you know what what about your journey too in terms of like becoming a mother like how has that shaped you it changes the game and everything that I do. I mean, the interesting part, here's a story within a story. I, I am writing um, a book slowly. Um, and I love this. Yeah, about um, motherhood and, and career and stuff. So I'll, a sneak peek would be um, with my first daughter, I was actually in my uh, pre-doc internship and post-doc um, fellowship. And I was just working like, hours and hours, you know, you're just trying to grind and finish your PhD, finish your hours so you can get your license. And um, who knows if that stress led to like prematurity or likely contributed to it. But at any rate, this is the story is that when I think of pregnancy, you think of the movies, oh my God, my water's breaking, it's gushing out, right? And I don't, you maybe you could share your experience, but <laughs> mine was leaking. And so I called, um, you know, the hospital and I said, hey, this is going on. They're like, why don't you come in? And I said, oh, I have to see some patients. I have to go home and eat dinner. Um, and so when I went home, which was good because I was closer to the hospital that I would actually be staying at for the week, trying to hold my daughter in at that early uh, gestational period. Um, but when I went there, they were like, let me do one test. Okay. No, let me do another one. And they're like, actually, you're going to have to stay here and check in. 
And my husband was freaking out. He was like, oh, my God, I didn't put the crib together. I didn't read the books. Well, he hates reading anyway, so I don't know yeah. what he's talking about. I, like, lightly slapped him. Maybe it was harder. Who knows? But I was like, get a hold of yourself, man. <laughs> um, so that shaped me so much because I was like, I have got to keep her in until the steroids could be injected, all these things. But really, my whole goal and existence at this point is to make sure they understand that as Asian American females, that they can do whatever they want in with their lives and to pave the way for them to have that flexibility and, and freedom. And so we can talk more about this, but the political climate, the racial pandemic, yeah. that's why it's so important to me because it's like one safety for all of us, but two, they have to live in this world after I'm gone. Yeah, exactly. And I think, um, so many of us are really struggling in terms of like feeling helpless and, and wanting to do something. And how do we become this agent of change? Um, you know, I deeply believe that change can start with one person. But even then, um, situations like this are so large. Um, we need systemic change. Um, we need something bigger to move the needle. So it's, it's really difficult and it's quite traumatic, honestly, like to be seeing the news constantly day after day and looking at people that look like you that are senselessly being attacked for no reason. Um, I've, I've personally had to kind of just like, you know, tone down my, my news um, just for my own mental health. Like, you know, and everybody deals with things differently, but, but it is a tough time for us to be um, in the AAPI community right now. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. But I mean, I love what you've said because, um, I think also what, what probably your mom and your grandma taught you, and they didn't even know it, was that they were feminists before they even knew they were feminists. They were just doing what they had to do to make it work. Um, when, what, what weeks were you in when that was happening with your daughter? Like what week in pregnancy? 33, and oh, I was wow. holding out to 34, which actually when you're in the NICU, which is a whole experience within itself, but there's babies that are even smaller or yeah. earlier than that. Right. And so you just see so much and you feel fortunate, but yeah, when I show my daughter, she's nine now, but I, when I show um, my daughter, our daughter's like what she looked like with all the wires, she's like, Ooh. <laughs> so it's not one of those like cute baby situations where you, you give birth and everything's like all cool. You're like, she's hooked no. up to tons of like, you know, wires yeah. and the machine and, yeah, I mean, and it gives you perspective, honestly. And I think that that's something in life that sometimes we we don't have it. And it's you have to search for, for it to kind of put you back on the right path. And everything went well with your second delivery then? Yeah, I mean, she joined. My kids all wanted to join the party early. But, you know, I'm small too, so there's no <laughs> room. Um, but she, she was born at 37 weeks, so she didn't reach the 40, but she was, you know, at healthy, normal development, yeah. but she's still really small. And, um, I mean, she's a spit, spitfire. So I can only imagine having a mom like you, they both must be firecrackers. <laughs> <laughs> well, my first one, and I don't know your experience, but my first one is very cautious. We call her the compliance officer. So, <laughs> so <I'm> the opposite. <laughs> I mean, that's also part of me, right? Because, you know, that anxious, like I have to do this and that um, kind of thing. But it's like my 
I joke with my husband, it's my karma. And then the little one's his karma because she's just like all over the place and you know, yeah. super smart, but like have to rein her in. And so, yeah. And, and it's so interesting how both kids have different personalities. So I know. And they come from you, right? I, yeah. um, my, my daughter is a perfectionist, which she clearly gets from me. And, um, <laughs> and then I like see things in her where I'm like, why are you like this? And yeah. then it's like, your worst traits just playing out as a little person right in front of you. And you just make the connection and you're like, damn it. <laughs> I know. It's like my genetics, my, you know, it, it's, it's so interesting. And back to your question, I just think that like it, it changes the, your behavior too, because you start, they're mirrors, right? Like, I mean, you're, mm-hmm. they're seeing what you're doing. And so you're like, Ooh, I really do say that a lot or I do that. So it makes you more conscious as to how you're going to modify your behavior and communicate yep. things to them. So, yeah, I would say being a parent has been the single biggest life changing event so far in my life, because you're right. Like you are the model to them of how they're supposed to behave, but also what's possible. Right. Um, so earlier this week, and, and it kind of broke my heart. My daughter was like, I want blonde hair. And I was like, oh, Tessa, tell me why. <laughs> like, why? And and it made me think about um, Lisa, who I interviewed um, a week or mm-hmm. so ago. She told me a story that was so poignant. She said that her mom sat her down and told her that she was beautiful, that she was Vietnamese and that she was beautiful just the way that she was. And it made me think of, of my own experience. And my mom and my family spent a lot of time saying that to me, right? But, but not why, like, right? So I, I, I had to talk to my daughter and I was like, no, you're beautiful just the way you are. I love your hair the way you are. It's beautiful. And, you know, Raya's out and we've got like yeah. a, a beautiful um, display of feminism that she can look up to. And even after that movie, she was like, I wanted blonde hair. And I was like, oh, man. <laughs> and, and the thing is, my, so my daughters didn't want blonde hair per se, but they they watch these like rainbow crap YouTube videos where they're <laughs> using markers, right? And they're like, I want to do this. And I'm like, first of all, no. But two, um, the, you need blonde hair in order to get that color. You're not, it's not going to show up on your hair. Your hair is beautiful. And for anyone, and even your daughter, just a little clip where Guy Tang talks about how um, a lot of the times, even even with white people, they don't have blonde hair. They still have to like diet to get <laughs> to that level. And also the extensions that people wear are our hair. They just process it and, and dye it. So they're oh. actually using our gorgeous hair uh, to on these models and celebrities and stuff like that. So um, I, I just tell them all the time. And Guy made a really good point in that um, some Asian, Asian Americans at some point were like, oh my gosh, I look white and it's gorgeous when, when he took them blonde and he says, what? Like, if you dye your hair green, that doesn't make you an alien. He, he views hair as a fashion statement versus like, it does not change your ethnicity or identity. And so I... I tried to impart that um, on my daughters too. Is like our hair is gorgeous. People want our hair and the texture and things like that. So um, yeah. if you no, want to dye it rainbow later, I'll ask Guy to help, like <laughs> consult. But <laughs> like not right now with like Crayola markers, please. No, 
No, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that tidbit. And it's also a good segue because you, obviously, as we mentioned at the top, are the host of Color of Success. And dude, you're killing it. <laughs> Tell us a little Thank bit about so the much. show and, and what, what kind of propelled you in that direction. Because, I mean, as moms, we don't have a lot of time. So you decided to not only be a mom, work full time, but also do this as well. So tell us about that journey. Sometimes I'm just like, what am I doing? Um, <laughs> I'm sure you go through that all the Same. time. Um, well, there, there's a couple things. One, I have a podcast that's really guided my career by Dr. Melvin Varghese, and it's called Selling the Couch. When I started my practice in 2016, I knew nothing like I've always been business minded, but I didn't know how to run a private practice. Like we had maybe like a seminar or two of like, you know, this is one of the career routes that people can take. And I had an opportunity to a very low risk opportunity to start a part time practice, but I had no clue what I was doing. So this podcast came at a great time. I followed so many of the episodes that helped me build my copy for my website, um, how to put out advertisements on psych psychology today, et cetera, and what would make a good profile to stand out and things like that. Well, during the pandemic, he offered a free masterclass. So Asians love free. Well, I do. Yeah. And so <laughs> I was like, it's free. I love Melvin. So I took the class and he was talking about how podcasting can be good for your business. Now, my, my practice has fortunately been full. And if, if not, I take one or two clients to fill the slots as people graduate or um, or whatnot, but um, it was just interesting. I learned about it. And then at the same time, Asian Hustle Network was born and I was seeing so many people's, people, different people's stories. And um, I also saw a huge need to talk about mental health because I think in the hustle mentality, uh, and I can speak for myself, there's a huge risk of burnout. And um, after a couple episodes in, I was like, the heck am I doing this? I don't need to do this. Like, <laughs> and then I saw a post about Asian men, like where do they find help? And there was some comments like, uh, grab a six pack, hug your family, all this stuff. Right. And so I was like, you know, that may help baseline, not the alcohol, but that may help baseline yeah. to hug your family and exercise and all that. But let's just say you're hearing voices or you're having a manic episode where you're having spending sprees and things like that. Um, and the toxic masculinity of like not see seeking help. Um, and I was like, okay, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing because we need to talk about these things. Right. Yeah. And I mean, you, you're getting guest after guest. That's amazing. Like you mentioned, you had Guy Tang. Um, I'm sorry. I don't know his name, but kimchi from. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Andrew Fung. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Amazing people. Um, I think you really learn that at at the core, everyone's human. And Guy Tang will always and has a special place in my heart because someone who has millions of followers has no need to talk to me or respond to a message, even though I ask a question in Clubhouse. Like, there's no need, right, to be vulnerable and share his experience of racism and trauma and things like that. But He's authentic. If anyone's authentic, it's him. And yeah. he totally connected with kind of the message and the vision of the podcast. And I just had amazing people. 
whether or not they have millions of followers, I think the important part is we're all human and we all have stories and many of us have um, things things to say about mental health and to break down those barriers is really important to me. Yeah, and I think that is the point, you know, we've talked about it, but that is the point of like storytelling is that connectedness um, to just make it make it so that people don't feel alone because there is shared experience everywhere in life. And I think that's just the humanity of it all. Um, in terms of like, you know, your voice as a female, um, have you ever stopped to think of like what it is to, to own that and to harness that and, and to be in the position that you have because, you know, your life's work um, is, is, it helps people obviously, but you're also broadcasting a better, a bigger message through your podcast. Um, what, what are your thoughts around that? Well, the podcast is really important as well. Thanks for asking that because the message can reach so many more people. Like I recognize the limits of one-to-one therapy and group therapy. And I love working with people on those levels, but at the end of the day, there's so many more people struggling. And I was just hoping through the podcast as well as the um, Instagram content that we can give people hope and coping skills and resources that can make them feel less alone, especially during this pandemic. And, you know, if it can help one person, then we're, we're doing what we need. You're doing the job. Yeah, exactly. Have you personally, how have you been faring for the last 12 months as we, as we go through this uh, anniversary? Well, I would say there, there have been a lot of ups and downs. I feel like as a provider, you're, I'm a container as well as others, like for a lot of people's stress, racial trauma, et cetera. Um, I am very fortunate to have an amazing family, um, as I mentioned, and my kids, like, like it's crazy. Uh, no, let's delete that C word from this. It <laughs> yeah. is very hectic um, to have people in the house all the time and doing homeschooling and, um, you know, playing video games. My house is so loud. Like you, you mentioned being unapologetic, unapologetically myself. Well, I am actually the quietest out of the no. household. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And so you can only imagine that the five of us, like how busy and loud it is. And so um, it's very interesting for people to find that out. But people are like talking over each other and I'm there being like, hey, 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 like don't hurt people's feelings. Don't hurt my feelings. Like let's like um, hear what people are saying. Um, the end part is we're never lonely. We're never bored. We have family movie nights and, and, and TV for an hour before um, kids go to bed all together, all five of us. And um, grandma's here. They can hug each other, um, help with homework. And I mean, she still works. And so um, everyone has their own things to do as well. That's so lovely, though, um, because personally, my kids haven't been able to hug their grandparents in a year. So it's so lovely that you guys are all together and you have that experience. Um, you know, I thought about what you said about how you might be the quietest. And I thought about what you shared in that clubhouse room about how your husband and your mom rose to TikTok talk fame. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so it's hilarious. So my husband <laughs> is total goofball and really just started it not with the intent of like going viral, but just like to have fun and to 
to do something. It's totally his attention span, you know, like those really brief videos yeah. and things, you know, IG is very, very different platform as well. So he started that and, um, you know, was having a lot of fun. And then my mom, we had, a ch- we love to prank each other. Um, one of the things we do, my mom gave us like a, um, prank packet, I guess you would call it, uh, and gave it to my youngest for Christmas. And one of them has like a plastic poop in it and we take turns hiding it. Um, and to the, this time it was mine this morning and I hid it in my oldest daughter's like headphones, like similar to the ones that you're wearing and I put it in the earphone part of it and like, stuff like that. Like it just keeps it fun. But anyways, the TikTok fame was hilarious because um, my mom, I joke with her all the time is she became famous for being herself, but being idiotic. And um, <laughs> one of them was she said flower bridge in Chinese, which sounds like F you. And so that one went viral. She landed on like uh, fail army uh, on YouTube and her customers recognized her and her boss would say that flower bridge thing. Um, and then she went viral the second time called the addicted video. And, um, my husband was saying what hit you in the face last night. Um, and and she was like, what hit me in my face? And then he's like, yeah. And so like, that was the second viral video that, that led him from zero to like over 190,000 followers because they like twiddle D and twiddle dumb. Like it's, it's just. Right. So still a fun thing, not anything that we're like trying to become famous for. Uh, But what my mom loves about it is that her customers that she can't see right now as a waitress, like find her and are like, is that you? And she's able to like talk to them and it's just led people. And then like when she's at her job, they'll be like, is that you in the addicted video? And she gets so happy. Like, ah, I got recognized today. It's hilarious. I mean, never probably in her lifetime would she have thought that this would have been her reality, right? Oh. I mean, people know around the Bay Area because she's, you know, uh, been a waitress and, and served when people are like late night clubbing and stuff oh, like yeah. that. Um, so she knows like a lot of people and they recognize her face, but this brought it to a whole new level. And it was just hilarious because they were going on lives together and everyone's like, I love grandma. I love your grandma. And, um, well, my kid's grandma, that's what we call her on the TikToks, you know? So, yeah. Oh, this is going to be so great for your kids to look back on too. Oh yeah. Um, which, you know, Jerry and I, I think have talked about it too. It's like, this is sort of like the legacy we're leaving our children. Um, in terms of like, you know, and I don't know how, how open your family has been, but we didn't get a lot of stories passed on to us um, as children. And it's nice to know that this is going to be there for our kids and they know what mom did for them um, to pave the way. And grandma's um, for better or for worse. <laughs> I love that. And, you know, it's, it's, you know, going back to my question of like, how, how has it been for you in the last 12 months? It's been a tough year, right? Um, but you guys sound like you've done a really good job of keeping it lighthearted in your home, which is amazing. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, like I said, I credit my husband a lot because he pulls so many different, like he wears so many hats, you know, he does the cooking for us. Like I mentioned, my mom can't 
book. Um, yeah. And uh, I don't like cooking at all. Um, and so just to have a supportive partner that helps you balance everything is yeah. help. There's no such thing as balance in my controversial opinion, but yeah, as best as we can. You try to reach that equilibrium, but is it really possible? Probably not. Um, but that's great. I mean, I'm I'm happy to hear that you have such a supportive um, spouse because that's that's what all us strong women need for real. Yeah. <laughs> so can't do it alone. No, it. I think what we really realized this year as well is um, we had a village you know, up until COVID happened and then part of the village had to go away, yeah. um, you know, just to be safe. And, you know, even my husband and I, you know, we, we haven't had a single night by ourselves, which oh, is really not normal, but, um, you know, we're trying to keep the family safe and be responsible. So <laughs> I can't wait. So, cause the in-laws are going to be fully vaccinated, um, by this week, I think. So we'll wait like yeah. two, three more weeks, but I just cannot wait for the kids to go to my in-laws again and spend the night and hug yeah. them and um, what, and the house to be a little bit more quiet because yeah, that, <laughs> the, that, that piece of not spending one-on-one time with your spouse without kind of mm-hmm. having to do the daily stuff. Like um, my husband and I are, are still very strong, but like we need that time. You know? Oh, yeah, exactly. You have to nurture the relationship, which I think is same, similar experience. It's like both of us are just trying to wrangle these two kids that we have at home. And at the end of the night, a lot of times he'll just fall asleep because he's exhausted. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I get that. I completely get that because he's actually managing the child care more so than I have been in the last 12 months. And it is not easy. And I do not envy him at all. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I, I just want to ask a question because I'm curious, but you don't strike me as an extrovert. Are you an extrovert? I'm sorry, an introvert. Are you an introvert? I think I'm an introvert extrovert when I think about it, because I could be very extroverted, but yeah. I also do that weird thing where I like to like have like kind of do my own thing. Yeah. Um, I have so much extrovert energy, and but I like to like read by myself or like just when it gets too loud, kind of tuck away in a corner because it gets hella loud here. And I'm yeah. just like, I need to go to the bathroom. Like, or I have a, a glam room uh, yeah. with my closet and, you know, my little makeup area. And so right. sometimes I'll just sit in there and then of course they'll find me, but right. I'm just like, <laughs> like I'm going to duck away for like 10 minutes. And I think yeah. that's like so needed. I think, yeah, we probably are kind of on the same wavelength there. I feel like I identify more as an introvert, but it's like, I've been home for 12 months with people that never leave my house. Like you can't just reset anymore. Like I used to drive to work and be able to just sit in silence if I wanted to, there's no recharging. And I think that that makes it difficult too. But, you know, like you said, with the vaccines, hopefully we're nearing the light at the end of the tunnel. I saw that you got yours and I was so happy for you. when I saw that it was early on. Um, so thanks for doing your part there. Yeah, I was happy to take it. Oh, happy. Yeah. And my mom got it um, second and my husband waited across the street at a clinic um, to see if there were extras and he was able to get his oh, first one. I love that. I love He's that. He's super resourceful. He's like, hey, you guys need water and snacks? Like, <laughs> I hope you have an extra and then I can, uh, and they're like, yeah, yeah, like come back at 3.30, so. Um, oh, and my awesome. brother got his first one. He works, you know, at, at a 
a restaurant in the food restaurant industry. So um, it's it's looking a lot better for the family. It is. It is. Yeah. And uh, my kids are, well, not my kids, my one kid, the kindergartner, she's actually going back to school at the end of the month. So, oh, just cra- nice singing crazy. It's couple yeah. hours to yourself or at exactly. least one <laughs> yeah it's it'll be easier to manage for sure and um you know just tying back to the practice like over the last 12 months have you really seen sort of like a shift in the makeup of the people that you're treating i know you um do specialize in substance abuse um as well as obviously the aapi experience but has the makeup also shifted in terms of like why people are coming to you you know, um, because I haven't had too many open slots, it doesn't mm. change as much, but the narrative of my AAPI clients has yeah. in that they address the stress of the racial trauma and the fear for their families. Um, in the hospital, that's where most of my substance abuse treatment yeah. specialty comes into play, although there there are quite a few people that come in with um, substance abuse problems um, in private practice, you know, there, it's a very uh, different population in that veterans and tech mm-hmm. professionals, although they have like common themes of similarity of like needing relationships, um, helping with functioning and stress and so forth. So I think they're all common themes, but um, especially those that are of AAPI descent, that has been at least one session or topic of discussion as to how to like cope with these things. and get involved and not feel so hopeless. Yeah. I'm, I'm so glad that you're able to be that resource for people. I mean, if you don't mind sharing uh, what, what are some coping mechanisms that you would, you know, provide from a, from a licensed psychologist viewpoint? I don't think it's too different from what's been going around, which is to build a supportive community, start talking about these things, um, get involved in advocacy to within your bandwidth, I would say, and mm-hmm. really self-care because that that's the biggest thing is I noticed myself, you, Jerry, everyone's been jumping in, like moderating clubhouse groups, trying to get involved with, you know, hate is a virus, et cetera, et cetera. And it's very overwhelming. And so as community members, just to be able to remind yourself to take care of yourself and figure out what you need as well. And that mental health professionals are here to help as well. I mean, this is really traumatic stuff. And to see these videos and to have elders in our lives that you worry about. My mom carries pepper spray now. I've been very vocal about that. Um, Even though she walks from job to car, car to home, um, you know, it's changed the dynamic and the behaviors of people in our community. But the other big thing is reaching out across communities as well. Like I mentioned, I don't see Asians as homogenous. However, we're also, people aren't coming up to these elders and saying, hey, are you Chinese? Hey, are you Vietnamese? Like they just see from their perspective an Asian elder and they're pushing them down. Um, So we really need to reach out cross-culturally as well to other communities to see how we can build solidarity and support. And I've my, one of the episodes I'll be releasing in a few weeks is with my Black friend who grew up in the Bay Area and we've been friends for over 10 years and we talked about like, what the heck can we do here? And, you know, he brought up a very good point, which I'll say in my uh, Dear Asian American letter, 
is that a lot of the times when let's just say a white person commits a crime, we don't think usually people don't generalize and say all white people are bad. We should stay mm-hmm. away from white people versus if there is um, a perpetrator who is maybe black or African-American we're like, oh, my gosh, people are like, let's be afraid of black people. So they don't have the privilege of not representing their entire race when yeah. something happens. And so just having these conversations of context and maybe the microaggressions that we're committing as well as Asian, Asian-Americans, those are important conversations to have. Yeah, those are all wonderful points. And it's... um. I think it's difficult to try and do all of that. So, you know, my recommendation would be, you know, pick off a chunk that you are mm-hmm. passionate about and, and go down that path. Um, it's, it's been a wild, wild 12 months for sure. I but I mean, yeah, thank you for sharing that. And I think, you know, to your point also, I think there is probably hope too in, 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 in the fact that we're all talking about this, actually trying to move toward um, a better tomorrow simply is, is what we're trying to get to, you know? Um, you, you, you talked about the letter, the Dear Asian Americans letter that is so important um, to this show. And, you know, we would really like to hear, you know, from your viewpoint, like what would you say to the community? Dear Asian Americans, it is okay to seek help from a psychologist or mental health provider. I mean, psychologists are doctors too, after all. Um, but in all seriousness, it is a strength to seek help and not a weakness. Therapy isn't some mystical event and doesn't mean you're crazy. It gives you a confidential safe space to talk about things that may be bothering you. You also don't have to necessarily exhibit moderate to severe issues, but may need assistance managing daily stressors and exploring self-development. Right now, many of us are going through pain on a community level, and I'm encouraging you to speak your truth. Reach out to those you love, connect with community members across various ethnicities, because now is an important time in history. We are at a fork in the road to choose solidarity and understanding over divisiveness. Be curious about what other people's struggles and journeys are. Just as many of us hope that we are not viewed as sole representatives of our ethnic or racial groups for bad behavior, We need to practice this notion when viewing events. It is not a time to put our heads down and fly under the radar, but speak up for our rights to safety, justice, and equality. Don't give up because there are people that will lift you up, like Tiff and myself. If we want to create a better place for our children and loved ones, now is the time to get involved in advocacy, increasing diversity and representation, elevating our voices in all sectors of society, encouraging our teachers to include Asian American history, and books by Asian American authors in the curriculum, being active in the community and social justice organizations, moderating social media groups, et cetera. We have the power and will to create positive change. With gratitude, Stephanie. Steph, that was so amazing and well thought out. Oh, thank you so much. And I think, you know, for our listeners, those are real actionable things that we can do to be the change. Like I said before, so many of us are, after the reckoning of this past year, just looking for ways to be agents of change. And Stephanie, you are setting that example every day, not only with your work, but with your podcast. And cheers to you, my strong female friend. Oh (laughs) my gosh, Tim. You 
are an amazing interviewer. Like I loved her at one-on-one time. This has yeah. been amazing. And I know like I've made a lifelong friend in you, Jerry, because what I think is the podcasting communities that I've been a part of have been a saving grace for me in terms of like meeting new friends, like genuine connections. And I think that is um, what I emphasize to people is like, yeah, it's great to like have quote unquote followers and things like that. But social media is a tool and not like the end on be all of your self-esteem. Like social media brought us together and we're a part of, you know, all of these communities and discussions and, um, but the genuine friendship that we have is, is what is meaningful. Yeah, exactly. You heard it here first <laughs> from Dr. <laughs> Stephanie. I mean, I, I would completely agree with you that this past year has been completely transformative for me as well. And I'm so thankful that I met you along in this process and we finally had the time to sit down and chat. So we wish you continued success and for you to continue being that strong female representation that our daughters need. Um, we'd love well. to see it. <laughs> you yeah. as well. well thank like, you you are doing amazing stuff. <laughs> Uh, thank you. It's hard to recognize when you're an Asian American. You don't, you, you have that imposter syndrome. <laughs> yeah, but I thanks think, for your time again. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. We'll talk soon. All right. Take Bye. Care. I think that was one of the most uh, important and amazing conversations that we've had um, here on the show. Um, especially as it pertains to mental health and how we need to just continue to talk about it, normalize it, um, especially for us men. Um, many of us grew up with fathers who didn't talk about a lot of these things or, or showed a lot of emotion. So um, as a father myself now and as, as, a, as a challenge to uh, my fellow brothers out there, especially the fellow dads, um, let's apologize, let's cry, let's show some emotion. Um, but most importantly, let's admit that sometimes we need help too. And so I want to thank Stephanie uh, for being vulnerable and sharing some really personal stories uh, with the birth of her children and some of the things that she and her family went through. And most importantly for that letter at the end, which um, having listened to it during the recording and now after Atlanta, um, just hits so differently. So uh, again, there are some resources that you can uh, utilize on our Instagram page uh, from the MGH Center uh, for Student Wellness, and there are other resources on our page as well. And um, if you are looking for something, please reach out. Hello at the Asian Americans is where you can find this through email, or you can certainly uh, try us on our Instagram DM box. Share this episode, share the show, share the Instagram if you found the show resonant. If you are so kind and want to help us continue sharing Asian American stories, uh, you can do that through our store that we have, which is bit.ly slash DAA shop. If you want to contribute just financially, you can go to buyjerryacoffee.com. And uh, I thank you so much uh, from the bottom of my heart. Uh, we got two exciting and two amazing conversations uh, to finish up March. We'll look forward to seeing you again on Friday and then to wrap up next Tuesday. Uh, with two more amazing interviews by our guest host, Tiffany. So a uh, big thank you to Tiffany for taking the reins of this show for the month of March during an incredibly challenging time for a lot of us and uh, guiding these conversations as we celebrate the women in our lives during Women's History Month and the Asian American. So 
I hope you are staying safe, healthy, and happy. We love you, and please be safe. This is Jerry Wan of the Earth Americans, and we'll see you next time.